Revolution. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today is a bit of a call to action first, as I've caught a power couple, Alex Jameson and Bob Gower. Alex was one of the co-creators and co-stars of the Oscar-nominated documentary Supersize Me and is also the best-selling author of five books, including Women, Food and Desire, and is a highly sought-after wellness expert and success mentor. She's been interviewed by Oprah, praised by the New York Times and CNN, amongst others, and is the host of Her Rules Radio, a number one rated podcast. Bob is the amazing author of Agile Business, a leader's guide to harnessing complexity, as well as an in-demand speaker and consultant. He has keynoted gatherings on four continents while still finding time to work with leaders at huge multinationals like Chanel, Ericsson and Ford. The one and only Seth Godin says of their new co-authored book, Radical Alignment, Successful communication leads to intentional action, which can only happen with enrollment. This book offers you a breakthrough in finding all three. Welcome to the show, Alex and Bob. Hello, thanks for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. Right, so we normally start with seven quickfire questions, but given there's two of you, there's four each to navigate. So starting with you, Alex, Mac or PC? Mac. Writing or painting? Oh, Oh, mm, uh, painting. (laughs) (laughs) Oprah or Ellen? Oprah. And finally, a bucket list or fuck it list? (laughs) (laughs) Fuck it list. Brilliant. And uh, Bob, tea or coffee? Coffee all the way. Alaska or Japan? Ooh, tough. I'm going to go with Japan today. But ask me again tomorrow. (laughs) Cuban rum or Irish whiskey? Irish whiskey. And lastly, the Dubliners or you two? I would go with the Dubliners. Nice, nice. Okay, well, um, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Before we get to your new book and the topics that surround it, on this show, we love to celebrate the sometimes linear, often quite scenic routes that guests take in their career so how how did it start for you both were there any unusual first jobs along the way (laughs) i love love that you say linear it's only linear in retrospect (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) seriously how much time do you have to talk about (laughs) the full hour (laughs) do it i was a taxi driver in alaska I was a stonemason in Virginia, a carpenter in Pennsylvania. I planted trees in Louisiana, and that was all before I was about 22. I also taught English in Japan for many years and was a newspaper designer. Um, I was design director of the San Francisco Examiner for quite a while, as well as some other weekly papers in the Bay Area. That's all before I started like this career, the career that I'm on. (laughs) 
That's incredible. Incredible. Can you compete with that, Alex? Oh, my goodness. No, I mean, Bob's got 10 years on me, so <laughs> that's not really fair. But um, my first paid job was shoveling whole wheelbarrows full of bark chips for 50 cents a load for my parents. It was like the sweatiest work and it took all summer to earn enough to buy my first skateboard. But I was very proud of that. <laughs> and then my, my first proper job, I mean, that I got paid from a non-family member. I was a dishwasher at the age of 14 in a at the Muffin Break, which was a cafe nice. pre-Starbucks. Yeah, and I, I, I have to be honest, the careers that we have, certainly my career, did not exist as an option when I was... <laughs> thinking about what am I going to be when I grow up? So yeah. the the linear path to where we are doesn't make any sense to my younger self. No. And and to be honest, that's exactly what we like. It's, it's what we celebrate. And, it, and it's a point I try to articulate to young uh, nephews and nieces that I have who, who sometimes maybe overthink and certainly over-concern themselves with what the right route is. Yeah. You know, we're raising a 13-year-old artist right now i'm super excited that he's like building miniature skateboards in his room and then going out and selling them at the skate park today amazing like, okay, those are skills that will get you through the rest of your life <laughs> <laughs> totally oh, i couldn't agree more oh well, good on him and then alex so, so so you studied at the national gourmet institute and the institute for integrative nutrition yeah, I, I actually have a degree, but I've done nothing with that history degree. It's everything I did after college that's led me to where I am now. Okay, okay. So so how did you start there and why did you start there? And then equally, why have you done nothing with that degree? Was it an experience that you learned from and then changed tact and moved direction? So I started as a journalism major in college and I hated the classes, so I switched to history because they were just a lot more fun. They were more interesting. And I did just as much writing, if not more, in the history classes. So I ended up becoming a writer, just not getting really good at grammar because I never t I never finished the grammar classes. <laughs> um, but it was after college, in my mid-20s, when I actually got really sick and kind of stumbled back into food as healing and, you know, the holistic health world that my mother had tried to drive into my soul, but I rebelled against as a teenager. So it was, I'm the kind of person that has to learn things the hard way on her own, I guess. So it was that path of discovering kind of that, that self-healing world that mm. then led me into, oh, it's not just food, you know, even though we, we ended up making Supersize Me, which was this kind of like global phenomenon, it, it then like it went a level deeper. It's like, oh, how do we think about our bodies and where do we get these ideas about what a good body or a bad body is and then base our self-worth on our physical appearance and then let's get into patriarchy. And it just, you know, it exploded from there and became this kind of creative leadership coaching in the last 10 years. Yeah, very cool. Very interesting indeed. Bob? You became one of the first people in the world, I understand, to earn an MBA in sustainable management. So, I mean, how did your paths cross? How did you guys meet? And then how did you end up both working on positive psychology? 
Wow. Yeah. And so I, and I actually came to the MBA a little bit later in my career. That was after, after the design career, you know, after the sort of the dot-com boom and bust, which I rode in the Bay Area in Silicon Valley. But before that, I mentioned like I'd lived in Japan for a long time. Um, I was teaching English to make a living, but I'd really been spending most of my time there studying Zen meditation and uh, martial arts. And I went there because I was very interested in Kind of, let's call it personal development, like trying to figure myself out, trying to figure out my place in the world, trying to be a good mm. person. Um, I, had, I had an undergrad degree in, in philosophy, mostly. It was sort of a, a kind of a mixed bag of things, um, but, but philosophy was the core. I always wanted to understand how the world operated. And I always had a sort of knack when I studied philosophy. One of the easiest courses I found, unlike everybody else in my school, was formal logic, you know, was sort of the basics of logic. And I've, so I've always had this kind of knack for being able to simplify things that are really complex. And that's not a career. That's not a, I don't know, it's not a skill. It's a skill that seems really valuable. People value it in, you know, like in conversation. But it's not, it doesn't have like the mark of, oh, you should go do this now. You know, like it's not, you know, it's not like spatial reasoning where you're like, oh, be an architect or a photographer. So it's, I had quite a bit of a struggle, actually, I think, trying to figure out what I really wanted to do and how I really wanted to contribute to the world. And I stumbled upon, actually, after my grad degree um, in sustainability, I stumbled upon something called agile software development, which some of your listeners may be quite familiar with, which to my mind is a place where well, sustainability kind of has at its core of thinking this idea of systems theory or complexity science, like you're looking at the world, you're looking at things as complex adaptive systems and agile does exactly the same thing. It just does it from a very different angle. It's looking at human organizations as complex systems. And so I thought, okay, this excites my curiosity. And so I was fortunate enough to get a job where I got to travel around the world converting or trying, I should actually say trying to change organizations and the way they operated and kind of failing over and over again and struggling with it quite a bit. And along the way, I moved to New York City and I went on a date with this beautiful blonde lady that I met at a dinner party. And I asked her what she did. And she told me that she had been in this movie. And I was like, oh, I remember you from this movie. I, I, I was totally into you in that movie. <laughs> and slowly, I, you know, we just had conversations over and over and over again because her work is doing behavior change with people. And my work was doing behavior change with organizations. And I think we were both at this transitional place in our career where we were really asking ourselves some very deep questions like, what am I good for? What am I really trying to accomplish in the world? What am I really trying to do in the world? And we just found ourselves, I think, over and over and over again, having almost the same conversation, like, oh, that's what you're struggling. That's what I'm struggling with, but just sort of at a different scale. And so I think that's kind of how our... I mean, certainly how our romance began. And then our, at five years in, we decided to, to kind of engage in some professional collaboration, which has resulted in this book. Incredible. Can I ask then, when you started to talk about the problems that you were both trying to simplify and solve, albeit for individuals and, and people versus organizations, did you notice there were significant parallels, <laughs> especially if you sort of look under the organization bonnet and it's made up of people? Were there parallels to, to explore further? Well, I'm going to insert myself here because there's a, a deeply personal and vulnerable aspect to both of our work, which is we both grew up in dysfunctional families and we both grew up really struggling to bring our our true selves and have boundaries in conversations that mattered. And 
when our son, my son, Bob's stepson, was about five or six, he was diagnosed with dyslexia and ADD. And very quickly, like he started having this real downward spiral in his self-worth as a tiny, tiny kid because he couldn't read as fast as the other kids. And he was getting like punished in school because it took him so long to do work and he just wasn't getting it. And so we started to see like, oh, like the struggles we had as kids were, you know, adjacent to what he was experiencing. I stumbled on this positive psychology in in terms of like tools that we could use to help our son have resilience and a growth mindset. And we looked at each other and we're like, we need this too. (laughs) We need this personally, but also, oh my gosh, this is what all of our clients, whether it's one-on-one coaching or organizational change, like everyone needs this. And we've joked many times that while Bob is leading these C-suite executive boardroom meetings, like people are just bringing their family systems and habits into work constantly. So getting kind of a psychology tool suite was really valuable for both of us. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've hit on something really powerful there. The fact that everyone needs this and you had that very personal and, and you know, arguably the best motivation to produce this suite. So so your book, Radical Alignment, is due out, I believe, on the 11th of August, so very soon after this podcast has been released. It's a book about difficult conversations, exactly what you've just articulated. So where did the idea for a book like this come from in terms of who who would benefit from it or is it literally as easy as saying well in theory everyone can benefit from this book yeah i mean that's actually been the struggle with marketing the book and positioning the book for us is that it sits we think actually right in between and and i know you're a marketer and you you'll might appreciate this that trying to market something as two things is really challenging but it really is both a very personal um like a personal development tool it's been one of the foundational personal development tools that we've actually used in our in our lives. And it's by far the reason, the whole reason we wrote the book is because people kept giving us, it was a, this was a framework we developed and we taught it to people in different contexts. And then we started noticing that we kept getting calls about it over and over and over again. And we were just having to, I was like, oh yeah, I had to describe that thing again today to somebody. And it takes about an hour to do, to do it justice each time you describe it. So at first we were like, let's just create a Google doc that really explains it. And then as we wrote the Google doc, we realized that there was nuance that was coming out and We also just began to use it more and more deliberately and really realized how powerful it was in making our lives better. And, and, you know, as Alex mentioned, we've both been, you know, we both kind of come from somewhat difficult childhoods. And and also, you know, I've been married a few times. Alex has been married as well. And we were really determined to make this relationship work. So it became sort of the primary tool that helped that work. But then it kept extending, you know, like I would go and facilitate a board meeting for, you know, a a very large organization that had a lot of problems. And then people would come back to me and say, that was the most significant um, experience we've ever had. You know, that was, you know, like all the things you've done or all the things facilitators have done for us recently, this was the tool that really was unlocking things for them. And so it took us a little while to realize that we had a product there. We're like, okay, we have the Google Doc. We have all of this market, like, let's call it market research or market demand. So let's make it a book. I think it's very easy to believe that the context of the boardroom is very different to the context of the playground. And, and clearly, you know, that's, that's both ends of the, of the kind of spectrum here. But I'm not saying they're exactly alike, but 
but it's very easy to convince yourselves that the types of behaviors um, and attitudes you might face in one don't also exist in the other. Oh my God. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I feel like I spend half my time trying to get people to stop acting out, you know, <laughs> in, board, in, in boardrooms, you know, cause they're, because people are used to it and because of power dynamics, you know, certain people who are more powerful tend to act out more and, and face fewer consequences or, or more slow, you know, slow burn kind of consequences for acting out. Yeah, and, exactly. And, and like you say, I mean, how do you position something that, that can exist at opposite ends of a scale? I mean, it's exactly that, yeah. that issue. And in fact, there's parallels with your skill of being able to simplify the complex. So I, I don't know whether retrospectively, I know we're all guilty of trying to retrospectively force logic into explaining things, but maybe that's why you wore so many different career hats before you were 22 because you had a skill that was relevant in so many walks of life and and this sounds like exactly the same type of same type of thing really yeah i had a lot of skills and a short attention span i think (laughs) (laughs) well what i've what i've found in teaching this and we'd love to share it with you uh, this you know this seemingly simple tool to especially my clients who a lot of them are like women in tech sales or they're you know women who are like climbing the corporate ladder becoming CEOs etc like learning to have this conversational structure in a deeply personal setting maybe it's with their family or with their spouse it translates so quickly into the professional setting and vice versa bob has taught this in boardrooms and you know, people who are leading organizations are like, that was great. I'm taking that home to my spouse. Like we need to have this conversation about our vacation or about college for our kid. So it, it, you know, no matter where we teach it, people are taking it into the other realm. Amazing. And what was the, what's the process been like working together? And I, I don't ask that to cause any uh, kind of friction between you two, but we've had several authors on Call to Action and I find it quite fascinating. We've had at one end of the spectrum, Matt Watkinson, who's a, a wonderful guy, good friend and author of The Grid. And he wrestled with it with his uh, writing process for some time versus a very recent guest called Paulina Tenner. Um, and she practiced what she eloquently calls the vomit edit, where you literally <laughs> just get it all out and then you rearrange it. So how, so, so how was the process and how was it working together on one, on one book? You know, it's, it's kind of a meta conversation in that we used the process that we're writing about to talk about how we're going to write the book. Amazing. So, because like, like Bob said, you know, we'd both been in relationships before me most recently, I was in a marriage that had a, a serious, like creative production involved in the relationship that went badly and yeah. <laughs> partially led to the destruction of the relationship. And that was my great fear. Both of us had the same fear. So we got really, really clear about like, okay, our marriage actually takes precedence. Like our, our marriage is the most important thing. This book is a great idea, but like, if the book is going to destroy the marriage, we obviously choose the marriage. <laughs> but then when we got into the writing process, we kind of stumbled upon and found a really graceful way to work together. And it was as simple as, all right, we're going to divvy up the chapters. You take one, I'll take two, you know, take whatever feels best to us. We gave it our best shot and then we just handed it over to the other person and had free reign. And again, this is another kind of boundary that came out of the conversation. Like 
I give you full, full permission to just edit the heck out of me. Like you don't have to check everything with me, just go to town. And we did that for each other. And just, we ended up finding a unified voice through that process. And it was honestly the easiest book I've written. And that's saying something. And even easier than the books you wrote by yourself. Totally. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That is interesting. I'm a fan of Hemingway's, uh, write drunk, edit sober. Not that I actually write drunk, but I did, but it is a little bit of that kind of, like, I think there's a, there's a time or actually Stephen King says it really well, I think as well, where he says there's a time to write with the door closed um, because you, you have to kind of get in touch with what you really think and having this permission from Alex, you know, we, we explicitly gave each other permission. It took us a little while to get there, but we explicitly gave each other permission to brutally and completely edit and rewrite to the point of, you know, deleting entire paragraphs or entire themes from the book, you know, like just being really, really ruthless um, for our own vision. But then King also talks about you write with the door open as well, because you actually need feedback and you need, you need someone else's point of view. So we would, you know, we would write individually with the door closed and sometimes on top of each other's stuff. And then when we felt ready, we would kick it back to the other person sort of writing with the door open. And then once we were happy with it as a piece ourselves, we would send it off to an editor. We actually hired an independent editor to kind of help us, someone who I'd worked with for years who kind of knew my voice. She's my kind mm-hmm. of blog editor, and, and she, she had helped me with a lot of articles over the years. So she knew my voice, or and she helped us kind of, and she read a lot of Alex's stuff and got our voice. And so we did all of that before it even ever got to, you know, our publisher's editor. Amazing. That must have been um, quite equally rewarding and terrifying to just give each other that freedom. But then I suppose you need to you need to kind of grease the wheels and allow that to, to progress. Well, I, I tell you what, it actually wasn't terrifying. And I credit what we you know, the basic tool that we talk about in the book is called the all in method. And it's a really simple way to create what we call. Well, we didn't name it for this, but team psychological safety where all the emotional landmines are uncovered. We know how we need to take care of ourselves and each other. So we were, it's not like we were going forward just blindly editing. Like we had a sense of what the other person needed and what we had full permission to do. I want to get into the all in method actually and ask you to elaborate a bit more on that if I may, but before we do, the idea of communication and effective communication is, of course, at the heart of of, of what you're um, sharing. Why why is it then that so many businesses and teams, couples, families, and groups who should be working together end up wasting time on this very unproductive conflict? Often, I have so many different answers to that at different at different levels of uh, of granularity or. Um, different places on the the ladder of abstraction. But I think right now where a lot of my attention is when I think of this is on, I, I think of it around, we, just, we touched on it earlier about sort of people bringing their family systems or their some of their relational habits into the workplace. But I think often what I've seen in the organizations that I work with is a lack of emotional maturity. Um, and I'll, I'll th- I'm totally willing to throw myself into that camp as well. You know, I've, I've definitely you know, blown up at people when I didn't need to, um, taken things personally that weren't meant personally, been defensive. Um, there's a, 
a therapist we loved named John Gottman, who talks about the, the, the four horsemen of the relationship apocalypse, essentially, like the four things that you, that people do that spell doom for relationships, which is, um, criticism, meaning you kind of locate a problem within somebody else. Like you always do this and you always do that. And you are, you are like this, right. Rather than sort of saying, when you did this, I felt that, you know, like, which is more of a, we're talking about behavior. We're talking about impact. Um, criticism is really talking about the person. So really critiquing the person. We see this all the time. I see this all the time in business that leads to defensiveness, um, which is another of the horsemen, you know, with the person just sort of arguing back. And then that sort of escalates into, um, sometimes stonewalling where people refuse to talk to each other anymore. Or what's the fourth horseman? Do you remember? There's stonewalling, defensiveness, criticizing, and I can't remember the other one. <laughs> I can't remember the other one either. That's so funny. Anyway, anyway, listener, go look it up. Yeah, yeah listener, yeah. John Gottman, amazing work. But the idea is that when we approach something with emotional maturity, like if somebody critiques us or, you know, or we, we don't respond with defensiveness and we stay engaged and we stay involved and we actually are willing to kind of work through the problems together. The reason that we developed this methodology or the reason that we we're bringing this methodology out is because one of the things we find is being so valuable is kind of like a, some people talk about having a prenuptial agreement before you get married. And the defense of that is right now you love each other, but if you're going to get divorced, you're not going to feel so great about each other. And then it's going to be really challenging to negotiate something that feels fair. So now why don't you negotiate that thing that feels fair while you feel good about each other? It may feel weird to you know, bring up divorce when you're just about to get married. But, you know, like it's actually a way of taking care of each other. If you really love each other, take care of each other. And so we kind of bring that spirit to projects, to work projects. It's like, OK, we're going to get ready to get into a really difficult project with each other. We're all likely bringing different levels of anxiety to the project. We're all probably bringing different levels of intent to the project. We're all bringing um, different concerns, different personal boundaries. We may, you know, like for me, this may be the most important project on my docket right now. But for you, it may be number three or number four, given everything else you've got on your plate. These, all of these things may lead, mismatches in all of these areas may lead to trouble down the road. They're like buried landmines that if we just stumble across them, we blow a leg off. But if we know they're there, we can either kind of detonate them in a controlled way or we can avoid them altogether. So let's kind of lay all of our cards out on the table first before we start planning, before we start creating the project guidelines and, 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 um, and working agreements and all of the things that kind of make the project up. So, and really it's taking care of, I think of it as the emotional body of the team. You know, you're trying to create a really, really healthy emotional landscape because that makes everything so much better, so much easier, so much more fun and so much more productive. Mm. And is there a way then within that, that framework and, and way of thinking, is there a way for individuals to analyze their own, say, strengths and weaknesses of their own style, if you like? Because there's so many complexities and different types of characters, no doubt, and that just throws in you know, more um, implications and hurdles. I, I think a little bit of self-awareness goes a long way. I mean, we, we have this background in positive psychology, which means we basically have a ton of background in, in typologies, right? Everything from Myers-Briggs to, you know, the strengths finders and all of these things um, to even like weird stuff like astrology and Enneagram, you know, like, and I've seen all of these things be valuable, um, mainly because they force a bit of self-reflection and people are like, oh yeah, I see myself in that and I don't see myself in this. And 
I know people that are specific are really fond. We talked to a lot of people that are really fond of strengths finders. I haven't used it in a few years, but yeah. like knowing that knowing how people that and I think but but I think at the core of that is is sort of an emotional maturity piece, which is we're going to appreciate that there are different kinds of people in the world. And, pe- and, and people, re- you know, and I think that's that's a core aspect of, of being emotionally mature is being able to take someone else's perspective and being able to appreciate difference and being able to pre- appreciate diversity. And of course, that's a whole other, you know, big topic for, for a variety of reasons right now in our teams. And I think our work certainly intersects with that. We're, we're not DEI people at all, but we certainly really value that work and intersect with that work. Yeah, I think that even just the practice of whatever method of, of self-reflection you use has a kind of signaling power as well, doesn't it? Even if the benefits are, you know, maybe in some instances almost like placebo-like because it shows that you are trying to self-reflect, there's, there's, there's positivities from that. I'm way out of my depth here, Bob. I don't know if there's any truth to that, but that's how, how I instinctively feel. Yeah, I mean, for myself, I, I, I mean, I always, I always joke. People ask me like, what my Myers Briggs type is, and I'm like, I'm the, I'm the type that forgets what type they are. You know, like, <laughs> I, I, I almost never remember which, you know, like which combo I am. You know, and yet we have friends who are like master facilitators of this stuff, and they'll, they'll break okay. it all down. And I'm like, oh yeah, I, I get it. That makes sense. And then sometimes there's a little bit of confirmation bias. I'm like, was that really me, or was that not me? But I think the whole pro, like just the process, like having a typology or having a not even necessarily a typology, but just like a way of understanding yourself, I, I think is hugely valuable. Something we've been both really loving recently is um, Julia Cameron's um, "Artist's Way." I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's this no. It's an amazing piece of work. And if you actually dig into Hollywood at all, you'll find the artist's way is literally everywhere. Like most writers, many, many actors, actors and actresses all credit this work, credit this process. It's a 12 week program that you kind of self pace and move yourself through. Um, But at at the core is a morning practice where you write your morning pages. Every, every morning you write 750 words or so longhand. Um, just sort of stream of consciousness, but it's really about self-reflection. Actually, um, Tim Ferriss swears by it now, so that's I think that's. I oh, really okay about it. Yeah. Oh, cool. I'll link to that in this episode listing then. That sounds amazing. And then, so going back to, I mean, Alex has, has given us um, a, a bit more detail on the all-in method. So I understand that the four steps are intentions, concerns, boundaries, dreams. Can you explain a? bit more about that and and uh, how people can get started with the all-in method. Yeah, I want to go back to what Bob said, calling it kind of a prenup for important conversations. I love thinking about it that way, that there's a few kind of ground rules that everybody agrees to. Everybody gets equal speaking time. You don't talk over each other. And you're not arguing points. You're really just sharing your thoughts and your feelings while you listen And then you listen to the other people share their thoughts and feelings. And the first step, and this is such a huge thing for me, it seems so like, oh, duh, no, (laughs) why didn't I think of this 20 years ago? You get really clear on what topic you're discussing. I know that sounds so banal, but truly I didn't have most important conversations in my life because I was afraid I need to talk to somebody about this thing, but it could go anywhere. Well, let's just agree We're going to talk about topic X. Great. Let's talk about X. My intentions for doing this thing are, 
you know, to have fun, to make money, to get clear about our vacation, like whatever it may be, so it's your why. Yeah. So a topic could be everything from, uh, we're going to, let's talk about this project. Um, you know, cause we're getting ready to kick off a project, this new contract. I, I know probably a lot of your listeners are agency people. So, you know, like, Hey, we got a new project. We have a new team. So let's talk, we're going to talk about this and maybe we can even say, we're going to talk about it. So we're all clear on on where we're going. And so our planning is thorough and complete. And so we all don't get overwhelmed and make all the money or something like that. Right. We say, we say what we're talking about and why or in a personal context, Hey, let's talk about, you know, our, the vacation we're getting ready to take just to make sure that we all have fun on the vacation. Like, let's just, let's just take some time and really talk about it. Um, and this is a, I think this is a revolutionary act, no matter what methodology you use after this, right? Just that, just like creating an hour to talk about something that's potentially high stakes that you're all going to do and talk about it in a vulnerable and personal and not like a problem solving or negotiate kind of way, but just really just to kind of sit and authentically listen to each other. It's groundbreaking. Um, and then you get into the, the steps, the intentions, concerns, boundaries, and dreams. And these are just buckets. Um, we usually develop prompt questions that are unique to the thing that we're discussing. So if it's a work project, um, you know, like uh, we could say, why are you a part of this project? Why do you want to be part of this project? Um, and of course, some people might just say, because my boss told me to, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because I don't want yeah. to get fired. That's great information, right? Um, or it could be, it could be because this particular kind of product is really meaningful to me in this specific way, you know, like I actually, you know, or I've always wanted to work on a campaign that involves media and, you know, used in this new way. And I, and this is an opportunity for me to try that, you know, like, so now we start to understand people's values, you know, like one person values, not getting fired. Another person values learning about something new. Another person values the product itself and bringing that into the world and making it successful. All those things are really valid and might work really well together, but it's kind of cool to know that up front. Yeah, got it. That makes a lot of sense. And and um, as Alex said a few minutes ago, it's setting those ground rules. I think if everyone knows that, they know the playing field then, don't they? And, and then you can operate with that knowledge. Whether you choose to operate positively because someone's shared that detail or not isn't necessarily what's relevant because ultimately you're you're well you're all in <laughs> so, right. hence the name and once you once you share you know there's the topic here are our intentions and then you get to maybe the easiest part which is concerns and our brains are just fear worry machines so it's easy to come up with concerns worries and fears but we really encourage you to you know dig deep as deep as feels safe for you to share in the context of where you're sharing um, because it really does help your brain and your nervous system calm down so that you eventually can make better decisions. Like, you know, I'm, I'm afraid writing this book together will cause us to fight and we'll divorce and die alone. You know, that, that was, <laughs> that was the ultimate fear in writing this book together. And as you share your fears, you may hear other people have the same ones and recognize, Oh yeah. Okay. I'm not the only one. And it actually relaxes you. And hearing other people's fears is really, really powerful. Um, one, one of our favorite authors, we mentioned him in the book, is a guy named Chris Voss, who was a hostage negotiator for the FBI for many years. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he says is that listening is a superpower and that when you listen, you're actually developing empathy for somebody else's position, which doesn't mean you approve of that position. It means that you are under, you develop an understanding, a kind of nuanced understanding of what it is that person wants and what it is that what motivates that person. And when you when someone shares their concern, 
Um, it can sometimes be threatening to us as well. Like, oh, wait, you're afraid of that. You know, like if Alex were to share, she was afraid of us getting divorced. I'm like, wait, you're thinking about us getting divorced? Not that I had that reaction because I actually had the same fear, but it's potential. And so, you know, again, just sort of like we're again, we're just listening. We're not arguing anybody else's concerns. We're just listening. And then the, the next step is we get into our boundaries, which is just asking people what helps them be the best. What do they need to feel their best either at work or on this experience at home, you know, and it could be that, hey, I got a, you know, I, I got a three-year-old at home and I'm not sleeping well. And, you know, like I, I can't get into a meeting before 10 a.m., you know, like that, that helps me be my best. Doesn't mean they're going to get it, but it means that everybody else has kind of an appreciation of where that person's at. Um, and then some people have, you know, more harder and fast boundaries. Like I don't answer email after 5 p.m. I just, you know, all of my teammates always know that. Um, that if they send me an email at night, they're not going to get an answer until the following morning at the, at the earliest. And it may not be until the following afternoon because often I, I, <laughs> I write in the mornings. I'm a little quirky and I'm also a little later in my career. So maybe I have a little more latitude than, 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 than I did earlier. But, um, but boundaries are just those kinds of things, things that keep us safe, things that, things that help us perform our best, um, things that we definitely want to happen or are sure we don't want to have happen, those kinds of things. And finally, we end on dreams. And dreams is my favorite part. It's where you really go into, if this were to go beautifully, what would be true for me, for you, for the team, for the client, for everyone, like to really get into kind of pie in the sky, big imagination time. And that has the effect of, you know, even if there were some conflicts between concerns and boundary sharing when we share our dreams we've found that it's really hard to not want other people's dreams to happen for them too and so you start sharing what the what your dreams are and you hear what other people are dreaming and you're like oh yeah like okay it puts us in a better frame of mind to then go into negotiation or problem solving because we've actually released some oxytocin together. We've gotten excited. We've gotten a little bit bonded together. And that's that's really where it all comes back together. Yeah, that sounds incredible. I, I, I had intended to ask you how the all-in method could be used in personal relationships, but it's so it's so beautifully obvious and simple that I don't think you need to you don't certainly don't need to answer that. We found it so useful to talk about things like, you know, we're 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 both I'm going to just out. I'm, I'm middle-aged. I, Alex is still, <laughs> no, I, I think we're both. <laughs> I turn 55 next week. This is exciting. So I may be even beyond middle-aged. Wow. Maybe that's, uh, maybe that's true. Um, but we've talked about, you know, as we get older, we're talking about finances a lot more and, you know, everything from sort of finances to sexuality to hell, we live in New York city and like we get invited to a lot of parties and we sometimes have energy for them and sometimes don't. So often in the, t- in the cab on the way to the party, we'll be like, what's your intention for this party tonight? And I'm like, I want, to, I want to, I want to meet one interesting person and, and be home in bed by nine. You know, like, and they're like, okay, all right, cool. All right. I'll, I'll under dreams. Yeah. Under dreams. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. No, it's, it's incredible. It sounds like a, a really brilliantly simple method, but as, um, as you said at the start, uh, Bob, there, there's real power, power in simplifying the complex. And I think it's a sign of, um, in general, it's a sign of, of real intelligence. Dave Trott talks about that a lot, that, you know, especially in our world of marketing and advertising, there's people almost making careers out of turning the simple into comp- complexity. And, and it's just, 
it's entirely entirely wrong but um no it sounds wonderful i i, will, I actually wanted to make one pitch just knowing your your audience a little bit like use yes. this with a client use this as a client intake it's amazing what it what it really i've used this in sales i almost i almost use it as a sales process as a consultant and it really unlocks really interesting information um, you don't even have to tell the client that you're doing it. You know, you just say, "Hey, why are you doing this project? And yeah. what, what might go wrong with this project? And what are you sure that needs to happen? And what are you sure that needs to not happen? And if this project goes really well, what will be true for you? And then all of that information can help craft a really nice um, proposal. Actually, yeah, no, you're right, and it's a much nicer and and likely more emotive way of phrasing what does success look like for you in this, which is kind of, I suppose, the closest that lots of agencies would get to asking these types of questions. Yeah, very good. Um, we've a couple of listener questions, if I may. Great. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. But we do have two for you. So you can have one each where you can share these. I don't mind how, how we go. But question one is from Zoe. And she asks, or she says, throughout the coronavirus pandemic, a lot of families have found themselves spending a lot more time together. Can the radical alignment be used in a family environment, perhaps with young children? So maybe we focus on the young children. We've talked about personal relationships and businesses already. Absolutely. We've been we've actually taught the method to over a thousand couples in a couple of different workshops since Corona uh, isolating hap started in the U.S. here. Um, and we've been using it with our son for years. You know, he's 13 now, but we've been using it with a slightly different language since he was seven or eight, I'm guessing. And so we absolutely use it with him. And, you know, we, let's say, you know, why do you want to go on vacation? And, you know, is there anything you're worried about? Anything you're afraid of happening? Any people or situations that you, you know, maybe have thoughts about? Um, is there anything you don't want to do? Is there anything you really want to do? <laughs> and then, you know, if, if we're driving home at the end of the vacation and it was so fun, how do you feel? And what was your favorite part, you know, getting them into that future thinking there. And so that's, that's like a very basic kind of languaging you can begin to use. And it's a, re I have to say like our, our 13 year old son is light years beyond where we were at his age or even in our mid twenties in terms of being able to have <laughs> tough conversations and listen to other people's ideas, thoughts, and feelings. Mm. Um, and, you know, he, he has said things recently, like, I'm really, I'm really glad I'm being raised learning to care about other people's feelings. Like, that's pretty awesome. I mean, I'll be honest, that was like the biggest parenting moment of my life to hear. <laughs> yeah, <that>. no doubt. <laughs> but you can, you can use this for all kinds of family conversations with all different ages and just like commit to keep coming back to it, commit to using it. It really becomes an easy tool over time. And and we've definitely used it around COVID. You know, we, we do live in a very busy, you know, Brooklyn neighborhood here and, you know, one getting clear on our intentions, like why are we social distancing? Well, we're social distancing to keep ourselves safe, keep, um, you know, flatten the curve and with our community, you know, so, and being able to communicate that to him really clearly, like any rules that we're imposing on you now, like this is why. And then also really, it, you know, there, you, we have to think about boundaries. So it's really brought up 
COVID has brought up both a lot of concerns, like there are so many fears associated with it from economic to, to biological, right, to health and, and relational. Um, like, I'm afraid I'm going to go insane in this apartment. <laughs> and yeah. so, and yeah. so then you're like, okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for a bike ride every day to get out. Um, when I do go out, I'm going to wear a mask, you know, like we're going to wash our hands as soon as we get back in the house. Like just really being explicit about these things is super helpful. And then even asking about dreams around COVID may seem kind of weird, but hell, it's the situation we find ourselves in. So let's imagine a best case scenario for it. We all survive it. Our, you know, the country, you know, the, the country's economy doesn't break down completely, and perhaps we are dreaming of a change in uh, in leadership in our in our government here. Perhaps <laughs> actively working for it every day. Sorry, off yeah, yeah. No, no, no. You keep that on the record. Yeah, yeah. And no, you're right. You're right, especially with the current context. And uh, clearly, there's you know differences with with us in the UK and you guys in in, in where you are in in Brooklyn but but even yesterday there was an altercation that I saw footage of in a supermarket locally where um, a customer wasn't adhering to social distancing with the lady at the checkout at the till and he was complaining about how poorly the government has dealt with the the crisis I mean whether that's true or not is is subjective and her point to him was well I know I agree it's a mess but you and I can look after each other and to do that, I need you to take a step back, sir. And he was he was totally floored by that. And he said, "Oh yeah, that's, you're right." And it was wow. it was it was brilliant to kind of just add that context between the two of them, almost create that level playing field of we can agree about the government maybe hasn't dealt with the situation as effectively as they should have done. But let's park that and agree on that. But you and I can do something now, and it was amazing. Mm. What I, what I love about that, I really feel like that captures something that I really value about the, our methodology, about the book, or about just kind of this kind of work, is those moments where you actually feel like, oh, I'm actually with you, you know, like I'm I'm on your team. We're actually all, we're actually all on the same team, and I don't, yeah. you know, I do think there's times in life where you actually have to treat people as as you know as hostile, and you you know negotiate for everything it's worth, and 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 all of that, and and you know. I, I do believe enemies exist. You know, I'm not, I'm not a, not a complete, um, peacenik or something, you know, I, I'm mostly pacifist, but anyway, all of that aside, I do, it's these moments. I think these moments are much more available to us than we actually think, you know, mm. going through life that, and I think our, our intent behind this method is not to solve every problem for everybody everywhere, but it's to keep those problems that don't need to develop from developing. Right. Because most yeah. of the time, I think most people who are doing something together actually kind of want to be doing that thing. together. We're such a social species. We love to be with each other. And I really just like I actually got emotional when you described that, like, oh, like that, like what a sweet moment that must have been to witness and to go through and to experience for those two people. Yeah, yeah, totally. I must uh, I must show my hand, though, and say I also celebrated hearing someone uh, say to someone who was complaining about having to wear a mask and uh, this guy said that the main reason I want you to wear a mask is so I don't have to hear you bitching about having to wear a fucking mask <laughs> <laughs> so well, I'm just showing my hand there those, 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 those gotcha moments certainly release some dopamine and make us all feel good <laughs> <laughs> exactly Exactly. Um, question two is from Andy. Andy asks, what is the greatest challenge in establishing good communications that you have come across either in work or life? 
I'm I, Bob may have a different answer, but for me, it's this idea that keeps coming up again and again of, is this person really trying to meet me in good faith? You know, proper, yeah. real communication can only happen if you're willing to meet each other and really listen and maybe even be willing to be changed by them and their perspective. And I've personally had a couple of interactions in the last few weeks that were kind of, they kind of uh, straddled professional and personal. And it became very clear that, okay, this person is like going back to the four horsemen. They're incredibly defensive and stonewalling. Like they are not able or willing to meet me in good faith and have a real, honest, vulnerable conversation. So I'm not sure if you have a different one. Yeah. I mean, that, that definitely resonates for me that, and I think one of the things that I try to determine a lot is, is, is somebody communicating in good faith and am, am I communicating in good faith? Because I think often we get, we have this idea that, you know, the way our legal system is structured, right. It's very combative. You know, it's like each person fights super hard for their mm -hmm. side and somehow truth is supposed to emerge from that process or justice is supposed to emerge from that process. And I think it's a, I don't think it works that way. I don't think that's the way justice and truth really work. I, I think it's much more of an inquiry. And certainly in our rather polarized political landscape, which I really think is driven by commerce and, as much as anything, right? Like people like, um, you know, uh, Alex Jones or Ben Shapiro or, you know, the, the, the left has their own as well. But like that they, they, they want more attention. And so therefore they're generating more controversy. They're generating more outrage among their listenership, which creates people like sticking around longer, more page views and more and more time listening and more ad ad impressions, those kinds of things. And, you know, and I get caught up in that almost in my personal. It's one of the reasons I've left social media is because I found myself engaging in social media in that way. I would assume that per that people were stupid. I would assume that they were evil if they held a different opinion to me, rather than just sort of assuming like, oh, they maybe they have something to teach me or maybe I have something to teach them. And can we, can we engage here and, 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 and figure that out? But that's, again, I think that goes back to emotional maturity. I think that, you know, for myself and the people that I'm working, that I'm engaging with. It's, it's a really interesting point that, and I've, I've shared this anecdote uh, once before on this podcast, when I spoke to a wonderful lady called Shalina Yan Mohammed, who um, works at Ogilvy. And it's a story of Bill Burnback, who you may you may uh, be familiar with. He's a he's a great ad man of yesterday, and he used to carry around in or he sorry he had I think embroidered or he carried around a card in on the inside pocket of his blazer that he religiously wore, and every time he felt he was in a discussion that was heading towards being quite a heated debate, um, where the views were entirely different to his own he would he would he would open his shirt uh, sorry his jacket and read the words they might be right just oh. to just to kind of reframe his head thinking i think i'm right but this person thinks they're right so let me explore the reasons why he thinks he's right and and he and he puts that down to why he was very successful in 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 life in general god i love that so much yeah curiosity <laughs> is so is so valuable i i've been I was reading up on like Darwin recently and also Richard Feynman, who is a scientist who I really respect, but they all have this kind of sense of, of curiosity about the world and this, and almost, and almost a non, non ideological 
position um, about things, which I which I find I don't know. And being willing to question oneself, I think, is probably one of the more powerful things you can do. Yeah, agreed. Well, great answers both. Thank you. Um, the, the final part of our interview is our four, four pertinent poses that all of our guests have to answer. So uh, number one is, what advice would you give to your younger selves? For me, it's, um, and it's something that I'm, re- that I'm coming to rather late in life, and it's, it, and it's stick, stick through things even when they're hard, right? Even when you get criticized or we get, when you get criticism, you know, continue to work on your craft. And maybe it's more of like create with the door closed a little more often, but continue, continue to create work, work through the adver- adversity. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever said this before. You are not responsible for your parents' mental health. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to steal that one. Can yeah. I tell you? Yeah, you yeah, can have that one too. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. That's brilliant. Um, if you could banish one thing from your industry, what would it be and why is question two? But I'm not sure if banishing anything is the right attitude given the uh, context of our episode. I would just say for me, it's a rigidity around frameworks and certifications because it's just sort of rampant in the, in the, um, in the management consulting and, and sort of process reengineering business, which is kind of where I find myself a lot. So things around like mm. agile and workflow and say, you know, like it's just we, we just tend to be like, this is how the world works and this is how we're going to make the world work. And, there, and because we've thought of it, now it's real and we're just going to sell the hell out of it. I. I, I really don't like that. And if I could get rid of like those two by two boxes that all the consultants draw, <laughs> but, but then again, they're a crutch that I depend on a you lot. Use them all the time. <laughs> Who are you trying to kid? <laughs> you tell us, Alex. I bet he's working on one right now. <laughs> um, if I could banish one thing from my industry, I think it would be this over reliance on sharing memes that are so oversimplified and end up making people feel bad about the complexities of who they are (laughs) yeah okay that's good that's good um number three so aside from um your your uh, soon to be released book radical alignment how to have game-changing conversations that will transform your business and your life are there any books that you can recommend to our listeners I have to say The Artist's Way, which we already shouted out, and Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. Also, we talked about that too. Yeah. I, he, he's on Masterclass. Am I right? He's got a short Masterclass. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. I highly recommend that one. Where You can hear yes. our voices turning around because we're turning around and looking at our bookshelves. We're like, what? What's, <laughs> what do we recommend? And those are the top two. Right? Actually, you know, one that's been coming to mind for me recently, it's, it's old and it's out of print now, but it's a book called System Antics. Systematic. Okay. It's all one word, and it's by a guy named John Gall, who actually was a pediatrician in um, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, and very weirdly, I quoted him in my first book. And then a friend of mine who lives in Ann Arbor uh, and who's also an author himself, uh, he, and he's a bit older, he's like, I used to take my kids to John, and I never. I never knew he was like a systems theorist. I just thought his office ran really, really well. You know, like I never, yeah. there was never a wait time in his office, but it's, it's, uh. it's one of these really beautiful, I mean, the, the, so Systemantics and then um, Danella Meadows, um, uh, uh, was it the, pr- the primer of systems primer? You know, the exact name is escaping me. Anyway, there, these are books that are sort of like at the foundations of, of systems theory. And I think they're, I think they're, I go back to them all the time. Perfect. Great. 
Um, we'll add all of those as links to to this episode. Um, and the fourth, um, it's, it's less of a question, but we always dedicate every episode to somebody and we bestow or hospital pass that honour, depending on your view, to our guests who have to give their reason why. So would you kindly dedicate this episode? I'm going to have to say my kid. I knew. Yeah. Yeah. He so inspires me to do better. And dang, I'm so proud of him. (laughs) Yeah. But really, I've learned so, I've had to, I've had to like really dig deep and learn so much more being his mom. Yeah. I I, I second that entirely, but I just want to add one, one brief one. But I I was just so impressed with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's speech about, um, Kind of the sexism in the Senate on the floor. Oh, it was last brilliant! Year. It was beautiful. It was. I, I, it was so inspiring and so brilliant. The house. The house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Well, um, this episode is very proudly dedicated to your kid and to uh, the wonderful AOC as well. I mean, she's she's an absolutely wonderful, wonderful woman, and she's so brilliantly articulate and that what you're referencing there i think i I played that on loop a few times here it's just every time she's she speaks it's hard not to listen and and find it incredibly engaging yeah does your does your lad ship skateboards internationally i must ask oh he would be thrilled and his mother would help him figure out how to do hey (laughs) amazing well we're going to put an order in then fantastic as a as a final call to action then everyone listening can head over to this episode online where we'll share links to absolutely everything we've discussed from uh, radical alignment we'll throw in all of all of the books um including the artist's way never split the difference um systematics if we can find that in print um how else can people get more alex jameson and, and bob gower I think just the book website yeah. is where we're sending people. You can always Google our names and it's very easy to find us. But but I would say the book is really what it's all about for us right now. And uh, it was just RadicalAlignmentBook.com. And uh, we are launching the week of August 11th and we're offering a bunch of stuff to people who order that week. So, or, you know, or before you can actually do it, take, take it, take action immediately as soon as you listen to this. Um, including, oh, uh, including an eight week, um, seminar with us for those who order 10 copies uh, or more, um, uh, pre- or pre-order 10 copies or more. Oh, brilliant. We'll get on it now listeners. And, and, and you could, uh, you could be one of the lucky ones. Amazing. Um, guys, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure and a privilege to talk to you both. We have so enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Giles. Uh, And finally, thank you to everybody listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please, please do share it and review the pod. We hugely value your support. Keep questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find GASP online. You can check out CTA pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. Yeah!
Hey! 